For the first half of the 17th century, England was, to put it lightly, a bit of a mess. By the halfway point of the century, England had already seen two civil wars. But in times of great chaos, the grip of tradition and custom loosens, and people start to think about how to do things differently. And during the 17th century, there was no shortage of radical pamphleteers ready to spill gallons of ink on any issue. But few ever reached during their lives the enigmatic status of John Lilburn, or as he was commonly referred to, Freeborn John. Throughout history, there have always been great men who stood as larger-than-life figures who almost seemed inhuman in their character, drive, and sheer magnetism. The 17th-century Englishman John Lilburn easily hits all the criteria for a person who almost seems like a character from a TV show or a novel as opposed to an actual person. Lilburn didn't live a very long life, but he did live an extremely eventful one. He seemingly rebelled against every single authority he possibly could. He spent the majority of his adult life in jail, but this did nothing to hamper his prolific writing. Over the course of his life, he would produce roughly 80 pamphlets, attacking religious intolerance, arbitrary taxation, state monopolies, and censorship. What Lilburn wanted was a form of government that secured private property rights, free trade, freedom of speech, religious tolerance, and most importantly, the rule of law. But more impressive than his extensive pamphleteering and theory is his uncompromising and unbreakable strength of will that both shocked and awed contemporaries. He was stubborn because he knew he was right about one simple thing. All people are born free. So John Lilburn was born sometime between 1613 and 1615, and he was the second son of a family of modest means. His father, Richard Lilburn, was a country gentleman's son, and owned enough land to consider himself of a middling class. A weird tidbit is that Lilburn's father was actually the last man in England to settle a legal dispute through trial by combat. A year after giving birth to her fourth child, Lilburn's mother tragically passed away when he was only four years old. The now-widowed Richard, alongside his children, travelled to the Lilburn family home located in Thickley, Puncherton. Fortunately for Lilburn, his family was wealthy enough for him to receive an education through grammar schools in Bishop Auckland and Newcastle-Huntine. After finishing his education at the usual age of about 14 or so, he began an apprenticeship under Thomas Hewson, a woolen cloth trader based in London. Hewson was what they called a Puritan, a religious minority composed of independents, Calvinists, and Presbyterians. While they disagreed in a lot of things, Puritans generally agreed that they wished to cleanse the Catholic and Anglican Church of what they saw as an over-reliance on lavish, yet empty ritual and suspicion. The King of England, James I, perceived Puritanism not as a threat, but an assault upon the established state religion of Anglicanism. For James, the Church and state were one and the same. You couldn't have one without the other. James expressed his views, saying, No bishop, no king. James and his son who succeeded him, Charles, dedicated their efforts towards stamping out any sort of seditious Puritans. During Lilburn's youth, there were a few vigorous advocates of religious tolerance to counter the Puritans' persecution. Puritan ministers and laymen were often hauled to special ecclesiastical courts, where judges questioned them about their beliefs. If a minister was deemed to be too Puritan, they would often lose their position. Worse yet, by 1625, King Charles issued a proclamation making it legal to publish or import a book without an approved license. Puritans who wrote anything that challenged religious orthodoxy often found themselves seized by authorities and dragged to the infamous court of the Star Chamber. Originally, the Star Chamber was established to prosecute particularly notable or prominent people. Though noble in its original intent, by Lilburn's day, the Star Chamber had become a tool of political oppression. Verdicts reached by the Star Chamber were often extremely arbitrary and harsh. 
Many who wrote controversial works suffered harsh conditions in prison, coupled with painful punishments, such as being whipped, branded, or even getting one's ears cut off. While working in London, Lilburn was introduced to the imprisoned Cambridge-educated John Bastwick, a man familiar with the authorities after being convicted for writing and publishing tracts in opposition to the bishops, who Puritans believed were unnecessary and dangerous. Lilburn began to visit Bastwick often, and the two became firm friends, with Bastwick making a strong impression on the young Lilburn, inspiring his respect for religious toleration, an idea struggling to gain a foothold in England's oppressive environment. When Lilburn completed his apprenticeship, he was in his early 20s. Despite the king's best efforts to censor every Puritan piece of writing he could, the printing press made this quite a whack-a-mole job. Book dealers commonly sold unlicensed and illegal books. A book dealer approached Bastwick and requested he compose an anti-bishop argument in English. Bastwick complied and wrote The Litany, which was clandestinely distributed to small circles of dissenters. The young and wide-eyed Lilburn read Litany and was so impressed he decided to take it upon himself to produce more copies. He planned to sail to Holland, a rare bastion of free speech at the time, and while there, he would print the books and then sneakily smuggle them back into England. John left for Holland in 1637. Within months, he quickly began sending thousands of copies of Litany back to England. The gleeful Lilburn was unaware that the majority of his books were being seized at English ports. When he returned to England towards the end of 1637, he was promptly detained and brought before the dreaded court of the Star Chamber the same court that had recently cut the tips off his mentor Bastwick's ears as punishment. The Star Chamber was not bound like regular courts to common law. Instead, proceedings consisted of aggressively questioning the accused. Suspects were brought to court and forced to swear an oath on the Bible to answer any questions asked of them truthfully. This oath was a big problem for Puritans, who feared lying after swearing on the Bible itself would endanger their chances of reaching heaven. If that wasn't bad enough, the court was notorious for using torture in an attempt to force confessions. Even worse, the Star Chamber had a neat rule in its back pocket. Anyone who refused to testify had in actuality confessed their guilt already. The Star Chamber was a legal monster, equipped with all the trappings of complete and arbitrary power over the accused. The Star Chamber didn't consist of honest judges enforcing a faithful adherence to the law and respect for freedom of religion. Instead, it resembled politicians enforcing their preferences for religious orthodoxy in line with the Anglican Church. The roughly 23-year-old Lilburn was staring at a legal monster that could swallow him whole. But when brought before court, Lilburn refused to take the oath. He was then sentenced to be imprisoned, but only after he was tied to a cart and whipped through London streets, then locked in wooden socks called pillories. According to sources, Lilburn was brutally whipped hundreds of times as he struggled to keep pace with the cart. Accounts of the event described his shoulders as swelled almost as big as penny loaf with bruises of the knotted cords and the wails in his back, made by his cruel whipping, were bigger than tobacco pipes. When the procession finally arrived at the pillory, Lilburn began to speak and drew a supportive crowd. He explained how he refused to take any oaths because it was absolutely against the law of God, for the law required no man accuse himself. Lilburn pulled some of his smuggled pamphlets out of his pockets and threw them to the crowd, asking them to make up their own minds. After being gagged, Lilburn stomped on the platform for the rest of his time in the miserable pillory. Lilburn was escorted back to prison by a sympathetic crowd closely following behind. But for the next two years, Lilburn resided within fleet prison walls, where he suffered harsh treatment, something he would grow accustomed to as the years wore on. But while in prison, Lilburn didn't just twiddle his thumbs. He wrote three pamphlets, talking about the nature of Puritanism, attacking the Church of England, and talking about his trial. 
Thankfully, by 1640, Parliament freed Lilburn from prison. His conviction was condemned as illegal, bloody, wicked, cruel, barbarous, and tyrannical. Oliver Cromwell actually led the charge for Lilburn's freedom, delivering a passionate speech that swayed Parliament. Cromwell and Lilburn were to an extent kindred spirits. Both came from modest means, and both were devoted to their religion. Lilburn returned from prison and began to attempt to settle back into everyday life. Still, Lilburn could not return to the woolen business because of monopolistic guilds that excluded him, so instead he had to work at his uncle's brewery. Soon after, he married Elizabeth Dowell, a daughter of a London merchant. They were already a perfect rabble-rousing couple, as Elizabeth had already been arrested, like her husband, for radical activities. If that isn't a power couple, I don't know what is. Lilburn's life looked like it was almost about to return to normality, but life wasn't so kind. All the way back in 1215, English barons had revolted against King John, and implemented what is called Magna Carta, a legal document that formed the backbone of English common law. Magna Carta had guaranteed certain legal norms and rights, such as the idea that the king could only raise taxes with Parliament's consent. And for generations, this arrangement had allowed for a power-sharing dynamic between the king and Parliament. But Charles had no interest in sharing power. Charles ignored Parliament and started what was called his personal reign. But without Parliament's support, surely the king couldn't raise taxes. However, one thing in life is always almost certain. Dictators rarely abstain from inventing new and increasingly complex methods of bleeding their citizens dry. And that is just what Charles did. Through unfair fines, selling monopolies and tithes, and erecting customs and duties, all without any say from Parliament. Frustrated by the king, in the November of 1641, Parliament passed what was called the Grand Remonstrance, a list of grievances against the king and his conduct during his personal reign. On top of this damning indictment of Charles's reign, five members of Parliament were suspected by Charles to have conspired with previous Scottish invaders. When the king arrived with soldiers to arrest these five members of Parliament in 1642, the rest of Parliament refused to disclose their comrades' location. Charles left London in a rage, and he quickly raised an army to stamp out the rebellious Parliament he had so long despised. Thus, the English war started, and Lilburn joined the Parliament's side against the King and his loyalists as a captain in the Parliamentary Army. Lilburn was enthusiastic but unlucky in his military career. At the first battle of the Civil War at Edgehill, he fought at the inconclusive battle that both sides claim was a victory. A few weeks later, Lilburn fought the Battle of Brentford. When Parliamentary troops began to falter, Lilburn rallied them to his side and held their position for a grueling six hours to secure the retreating artillery train. After an extended battle, the Royalists defeated Parliamentary forces and 500 prisoners were captured, including Lilburn, who was held prisoner in Oxford Castle, along with three other officers. Lilburn and his fellow officers were charged for treason and was to be executed on December 20th. Thankfully, Lilburn managed to sneak out a little piece of paper intended for the House of Commons, with Lilburn saying that four Royalist officers ought to meet the same fate if he and his officers were executed. But the letter still had to arrive on time, during the dead of winter and three months pregnant, Lilburn's wife Elizabeth galloped to the House of Commons and successfully saved her husband's life. Months later, Lilburn returned to London, where thousands celebrated his arrival. Lilburn rejoined the army and was promoted to lieutenant colonel of dragoons. Lilburn distinguished himself on the battlefield at Marston Moor in 1644, and shortly after, he was responsible for capturing a castle, but the Earl of Manchester stole credit for his deeds, sadly. The English Civil Wars were one of the most grueling and miserable conflicts English people had ever seen. Estimates of total casualties vary, but perhaps 1 in 10 Englishmen were killed in the conflict, a higher proportion than World War I based on population at the time. By 1646, after four years, 
the war was brought to a close thanks to the energetic leadership of Oliver Cromwell. He reorganized the parliamentary army into the new model army. But despite his successes, Lilburn left the army in 1645 when he refused to take a new loyalty oath, the Solemn League and Covenant. By 1645, Lilburn's views began to shift further and further from orthodoxy. He began to alienate more conservative parliamentarians and began to align himself alongside people like Richard Overton, a staunch supporter of religious toleration. Lilburn was more and more willing to attack conservative opponents. But by 1645, this landed Lilburn in some hot water when he was called to the House of Lords to answer accusations of libel towards his former general, the Earl of Manchester. Having an astute legal mind, thanks to reading the esteemed judge, Edward Cook, Lilburn pointed out that Magna Carta guaranteed a trial by one's peers, and since they were lords and he was not, they could not act as a jury for him. This landed him in jail yet again, and while in prison, Lilburn kept writing as always. Contemplating in his lonely cell, Lilburn began to realise that his ideals of free speech and religious toleration were ideas that Parliament were not so keen as they once made themselves out to be. He wrote that Parliament fought the war under the pretense of freedom, but in reality, all they were doing was getting rid of one dictator, replacing with another. While in prison, he wrote England's birthright justified, where he attacked the injustices of the government granted monopolies in preaching and business. Lilburn also added that for a trial to be valid, every person ought to be guaranteed that formal charges are filed for known laws, and that the defendant was allowed to present a robust legal defence. Lastly, from experience, Lilburn observed that the longer men are in power, the more corrupt they became. The solution was to hold annual elections with a system of universal male suffrage. A man with a loose tongue and of strong religious convictions, Lilburn believed free speech and religious toleration were not just pleasant privileges, but rights that ought to be guaranteed. He explained that the insufferable, unjust, and tyrannical monopoly of printing suppressed just rights and liberties of freeborn people. Like-minded individuals like Wallowin and Overton organized petitions to release, or at least give Lilburn a proper trial. The campaign to free Lilburn spawned a group known as the Levellers. They pushed for legal reforms that would secure the rule of law and almost universal male suffrage. The Levellers, like many political terms, started out as an insult. The Leveller was supposed to denote someone who wished to equalise property ownership. But of course, the truth is, is that you take a look at a survey of Leveller thought, it reveals they saw the necessity and the natural right of private property. The budding Levellers organised a petition with the intention of freeing Lilburn from his newest of many prison sentences. With over 2,000 signatures, Lilburn was subsequently released on bail in November 1647. Lilburn spent his time sharpening the Levellers into a more organised group, with regular meetings, an elected central committee, and even agents who travelled the country, holding meetings to spread their ideas. At one meeting in 1648, Lilburn was arrested when a spy reported his activities. In 1649, when Lilburn was behind bars, King Charles was in prison yet again for trying to start a second civil war. Parliament could no longer install Charles as a monarch with limited powers. He had proven time and time again that he's untrustworthy and devious person who dare knew anything to see himself back in power. The war Parliament had waged was about upholding Magna Carta and a commitment to the rule of law over the will of kings. Lilburn did not object to putting the king on trial, but he did object to the establishing of special and separate procedures for the king. Lilburn wanted the king to go through the same system as everyone else. When prosecuting royalists, Lilburn advised that they give him the same trial as everyone else to stop bad legal precedents. He warned that, what is done to anyone will be done to everyone. Regardless, the king was executed, and England became a republic for the first time, 
but this is not to last at all. Though England was a republic, in reality it was a de facto monarchy, with Oliver Cromwell at the very top. After the king's execution, the Rump Parliament abolished the House of Lords and established the Council of the State with 41 members, with Cromwell as its chairman. When the Council banned petitions to Parliament, Lilburn wrote England's new chains discovered, where he condemned in no unclear terms the abuses of arbitrary power. When Lilburn read aloud the second part of his pamphlet, presented at the House of Commons, he was arrested by a small army of a hundred soldiers outside of his home. When Lilburn stood trial, judges interrogated him whether or not he was the author of the seditious pamphlet. Lilburn, as always, upheld the right against self-incrimination and refused to answer. Even with only a day to organise his defence, the jury was convinced. After an hour of discussion, all charges were dropped on Lilburn. This is an example of what we today call jury nullification. Importantly, during the trial, Lilburn expressed a novel legal innovation, that the jury was the final judge of the law, and fact. After his release, the Leveller movement had lost a lot of momentum. Lilburn ran for the position of Alderman of the City of London, and had won, but Parliament voided the election. For the most part, Lilburn's life was actually quite quiet politically, and for his beleaguered wife Elizabeth with ten children, it must have been a happier time for her than previous years. But Lilburn in 1651 found himself in hot water, yet again, over a feud with a Sir Arthur Hesseridge, who Lilburn had viciously criticised. Lilburn lost his case and had to pay a large amount to compensate him, but also, most egregiously, he was sentenced to exile. Parliament threatened that he was to be killed if he ever stepped foot in England again. By 1652, Lilburn had to leave his wife and children yet again for the umpteenth time. He spent his exile in the Netherlands, where he continued to criticise the English government from afar. After the rump parliament's expulsion that passed the treason acts that Lilburn was convicted of, he hoped he could return to England and apply for a pass to return. When one was not granted, Lilburn returned anyway. When Cromwell asked him to promise to keep quiet, he refused. Lilburn contested every single step of the trial and was eventually acquitted to large crowds, crying, Long live John Lilburn. But John Lilburn was not truly free. Cromwell feared Lilburn's rebellious spirit and he thought that he was in contact with royalists who conspired to overthrow the fragile republic. Lilburn was first brought to the Tower of London, but then travelled to a castle in Jersey, before finally being moved to Gorey Bay, where the local governor could disregard habeas corpus. After petitions from his wife and father fearing for his health, Lilburn was transferred to Dover, where he stayed in the castle. While here, Lilburn converted to Quakerism. Lilburn was permitted to visit his wife, who moved much closer to Dover along with their children. The prison's poor condition caused Lilburn to catch gale fever, which is thought to have been something like typhus. His health declined, and while visiting his wife, he died in her arms in 1657. The English Republic collapsed quickly after his death, only lasting a mere 11 years, and the monarchy was reinstated. Though the Stuart monarchy returned, it was not the same monarchy as before. In 1660, the new king, Charles II, found himself lacking all the arbitrary powers his forebears had wielded and this was in large part thanks to people like Lilburn. In his life, Lilburn was a soldier, an activist, an enemy of the state. He lived over half of his adult life in various prisons for his fearless and constant criticisms of those who would compromise on the important issue of human freedom. Lilburn was also a rock star in his day, easily being one of the most popular figures thanks to his public persona that resembled the kind of Christian martyr of suffering for his people's liberty, a very convincing message for a deeply religious population. But his contemporaries also joked about him. 
They said he was so argumentative that if he was the last person on the planet, he would find some way to argue with himself. He had no qualm of saying his mind, and this enraged people in high places. One contemporary said Lilburn enraged those in powers because the freeness of his tongue was against all kinds of injustice. What I was shocked at is that Lilburn's popularity began to fade. In the 19th century, Victorians preferred the so-called great man Cromwell over the spoilsport Lilburn, who was a constant thorn in his side. But thankfully, his popularity was not confined only to England by any means. In fact, Lilburn was most appreciated after his death in the American colonies, where his name lived on as a hero of free speech and advocate of jury's rights. It is arguable that the Fifth Amendment in the American Constitution, the right to silence, or the right to remain silent as you normally hear on TV shows, might not have existed without freeborn John at all. In colonial America, Lilburn was often cited in relation to court cases on the issues of free speech, freedom of religion, and the rights of juries. One of his trials was even cited in the majority opinion from the 1966 Supreme Court case Miranda v. Arizona. As an advocate of free speech, free markets, religious toleration, and constitutionally limited power, Lilburn might be one of the first English libertarians, but I'll leave that up to scholars to debate. Regardless of the political label we paste on his life, while his fellow Civil War veterans turned slowly away from civil liberties, Lilburn only became more consistent as time passed, dedicating his health, wealth, and freedom for the rights of not just some people here and there, but all people. Lilburn took it upon himself to make civil disobedience a way of life. He was one of the greatest troublemakers who has ever graced history. As new challenges to civil liberties emerge, it is never a bad idea to return to the first principles and examine the life and thought of trailblazers and upstarts like Freeborn John. Thanks Emil for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Portraits of Liberty is written and hosted by me, Paul Meany, and produced by Landry Ayers. You can also visit libertarianism.org to find more shows like this. I hope to see you next time.